Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, as we round the final turn, the final stretch, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There are a lot of people who are eager for the day when car companies will introduce full automated driving. I confess, I'm one of those people. If I could just head down the road and not think about anything, uh, just sort of enjoy the ride, no real concern about the traffic ahead or what's around me, just sit back and relax, uh, that full sort of automated experience. But right now, the technology is far from ready. Automated driving requires quite a bit of driver responsibility and driver response. You have to stay alert for all the dangers that are around you and ahead of you. Some systems, if you don't do that, or most systems, if you don't do that, will break or, or uh, accelerate or whatever it might be to get around uh, temporarily. But ultimately, they require you to take control. And if you don't, if you don't take control, the car is designed to give you all kinds of alerts and warnings, a series of escalated Uh, notifications on your instrument panel or uh, audible sounds that are beeping at you. Some cars will honk their horn. Eventually, if you don't take control, they'll slam on the brakes. Some are even designed to pull off the road so that you're not a danger to yourself or anyone around you so that you don't eventually kill yourself. Engineers will probably overcome those challenges someday and give us that full automated experience and get rid of all those warnings, people will be able to safely go wherever they want without really paying attention to all the dangers. But while that might be true in our travel, it'll never be true in your spiritual journey. There's no autopilot. There is no automated sort of system that's ever going to allow you to just sort of sit back and not pay attention to the dangers, to the threats, to the things that could do serious harm to you or even to the people around you. And while there isn't maybe the audible sort of uh, uh, alarms and there aren't necessarily those uh, visual instrument panels in front of you, there are alarms that are all around you as to the dangers that are on your way so that if you ever find yourself distracted, not paying attention, there are things that ought to call you back. If you ever find yourself just sort of wanting to coast along through your spiritual life, there are things that call you back. And Jesus, in this passage this morning, in verses 15 through 20 in Matthew chapter 7, gives us, if you will, some of the kind of warning signals that are necessary in our life to sound the alarm when we are in danger, particularly when we are in danger of false spiritual leadership, or you might even say false moral leadership. He is here warning signs. Alerts that ought to sound in your heart and mind when you encounter these 
spiritual dangers, particularly when you encounter what he calls wolves in sheep's clothing. Threats that cover themselves in the cloak of charm and civility, but stealthily they are out to sabotage your soul. This is what he says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So this is the core idea. This is the core warning. You develop this kind of discernment that ought to be active all the time, looking at these kinds of signs, discerning these wolves in sheep's clothing, these false prophets, by taking note of the fruit in their lives. Now he expands on this in verse 16 with this sort of agricultural analogy. Are grapes gathered by thorn bushes or figs from thistles, he says? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the distressed tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus is giving us a bit of a warning system, a bit of a way to set off alarms in our heart and mind when we encounter danger. When we're on our journey, our spiritual journey, if you will, our walk through this life and maybe our walk with the Lord, he gives us this way of developing a kind of discernment to know the dangers that are around us and especially to recognize these kinds of ravenous wolves who dress themselves in sheep's clothing. And there are three main points that he makes in kind of developing this alert system or developing this discernment. The first and probably the most important is simply in verse 15, and that is that you and I need to realize the deception of these false prophets. Realize the deception of these false prophets. Simply to say, to, uh, to, to, to recognize or to remember that the evil, in order to do its worst, must look its best. It has to. Like counterfeit money, no one is really going to buy it, no one's really going to take it, no one's going to accept it if it doesn't appear legitimate. No one is going to receive it if it has no apparent value, if it is uh, evident that it is a fake. And so false prophets learn to speak in biblical ideals in sort of moral high language. They operate, if you will, in the currency of ethical high grounds. And so Jesus wants you to understand this. He wants you to understand that falsehood dresses itself up as truth, and it has to. It has to. There are the naive and there are the foolish who imagine as they go along the way that the pitfalls, that the dangers that they're going to encounter are going to be so obvious to them that they really don't even have to look very deeply. 
They just assume that, that, that evil is going to present itself in its worst form. They just assume that, that uh, uh, immorality and all those other things are going to pass themselves off as destructive elements and will be easily avoided. But corruption, in order to do its worst work, has to pass itself off. It has to become very good at passing itself off as virtue. And it's incredible how many people will gullibly fall into the trap of accepting the claims of virtue that corruption would make simply because it makes them. False teachers, false prophets are adept at assuring you of their virtue. They're proficient at persuading the naive of the morality and the nobility and the superiority of the various positions that they espouse. And this is especially true for those who are inexperienced, those who are naive, those who are younger who fail to understand that moral danger often introduces itself under the banner of a noble cause, under the facade of moral outrage, under the language of purity, or or even in religious terms, it introduces itself under the banner of higher devotion to God. It may try to impress you with its expertise or dazzle you with its doctorates or sway you with a sense of its success or exhilaration or charm or whatever. Because if they were to put their real character on display, you would immediately be alerted to the danger that's there and you would defend yourself. And so evil poses as your guide and your friend wanting you to let your defenses down. Reality, Jesus says, is that wolves dress themselves in sheep's clothing. The wolf, of course, is one of the most ferocious and vicious animals known in ancient Palestine. They were known for creeping around stealthily, hiding themselves in bushes, always blending in with their surroundings so that they wouldn't be seen, coming out even in the dark of night, patiently waiting and wanting to pounce on any sheep who wandered too far away from the fold. And once they sunk their teeth into you, they quickly know how to rip you apart limb by limb so that you are devastated quickly. And so Jesus is describing these wolves, these prophets, these teachers who intentionally dress themselves up in unthreatening language, in plausible arguments, intentionally hiding their real nature or at least uh, where their real nature is not immediately obvious to you. They pretend to be harmless. They clothe themselves in something other than what they really are. And the foolish and the naive are duped. Because as I said, falsehood has to do this. Deception has to do this. False prophets have to do this. Because in order for evil to do its worst, it has to look its best. Not many people, maybe not any people, 
are going to attach themselves to some cause that doesn't claim to be a noble cause. No one ever tries to attach themselves intentionally to a bad or a useless or a doomed cause. They all want to believe that they are fighting for something that is worthwhile, that is meaningful, that's worth whatever their time or investment is. No one wants to be known necessarily as a corrupter and a destroyer. So, Peter says, these false prophets in 2 Peter 2.19, they promise people freedom when they themselves are slaves of corruption. This is what false teachers do. They come with all kinds of promises. They come with all kinds of, uh, of, of sort of crusades, all kinds of virtues that they're promoting They speak of all these things because that is their act. That is their device. That is their maneuver to draw you away from the flock, to bring you out to the place of vulnerability. Their strategy to the unsuspecting is to appeal either to your sense of virtue or in some cases to your sense of pride. The fact that you are the one who finally among all the people have gotten it right. Romans 16, 18 says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Jude 16 says they show favoritism in order to gain an advantage. In Jeremiah's day, he describes the false prophets as those, he says, who heal the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So you hear the kind of promises that they make, the kind of statements, the kind of claims that they're they're proposing, that they're going to be the ones leading on a pathway to peace. Or Jeremiah 23, 17, he says, they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it will be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, no disaster will come upon you. These are their claims. These are the sheep's clothing that they dress themselves in. They promise you peace. They flatter your heart. They tell you everything's going to be fine. Or maybe here in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus might have been specifically thinking of those who promote a form of discipleship that is not narrow and it is not difficult. It doesn't require you to enter by the narrow gate. In fact, it is the wide gate, the broad road, the popular way that they're calling you to. It promises peace. It promotes what it calls virtue. It never speaks of sin and shame. It doesn't talk about the need of repentance. It only gives you a superficial peace. 
It might even offer you all the promises of the gospel. It will tell you that you'll be comforted. It'll tell you that you'll be satisfied. It says that you will receive mercy, that you'll inherit the earth, but there's never a demand for poverty of spirit or mourning over sin or hungering and thirsting for righteousness. None of that. And Jesus is saying that the foolish and the naive are duped. They're drawn in. They just accept whatever these teachers say at face value. They buy into the superficial promises and all the feel-good talk of these self-proclaimed guides. And there are always plenty of people to hear their message because there are always plenty of people who are disinterested in the truth of the gospel. They don't like the message of self-denial. They don't like the message of repentance. What people really want is a message that appeals to their own sense of pleasure, their own, their own sort of fleshly appetites. And these false prophets are always ready to give it to them. But for all their promising talk, they never give you, they never reveal to you the end goal, which is your corruption, the destruction of your character, and your life and your soul. Their goal, maybe in one sense, is to lead you down this dangerous pathway of self destruction, but certainly in another sense, it is to create a kind of resistance in your heart to the truth. Their approach might be to boast in the cleverness of their arguments against straw men blowing up superficial representations of the truth. Like a traditional vaccine, we've all become familiar with the way vaccines work these days. Uh, Typically, some sort of dead or inactive form of a virus is introduced to the body enough that your body generates antibodies that will fight off the virus. There's nothing really to fight, just some sort of dead form, but your body builds up this defense against it. And so when you encounter the real virus, there's a wall of defense already built up in your body. Well, these false teachers inject you with just lifeless forms of Christianity, some lifeless version of, of, of the doctrine of the truth, And they give it with cynicism or sarcasm or contemptuous language. And they get you to reject it. They get you to reject their false straw man arguments. And when you have rejected the empty shell of the truth, the caricature of the truth, sadly, when you do encounter the real gospel, the real message of Christ, you have built up a wall of resistance and will not even listen to it. You've hardened your heart against it. 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about these false teachers, these false prophets who will arise in the days to come. He says, their consciences are seared as with a branding iron. They've shipwrecked their own conscience and now in order to soothe themselves or in order to deflect attention away from their own guilt, they are all about gathering followers after their own cause. 
They want to sear everyone's conscience around them. These false teachers have lost any kind of active capacity for remorse over their own sin. And so they become, as someone said, like a speeding car without brakes. Just running along in the thrill of the ride and inviting you along with them, but without any discussion of the disaster, it is unavoidable up ahead. But see, false teachers never present any of this to you. They couldn't because you'd never get in. You'd never buy in. And so they have to present their message with a cloak of virtue. And Jesus is warning you that there has to be a fundamental understanding in your heart of the way that false prophets and false teachers and deceivers work. You don't want to be duped. Every uh, generation is filled with enough people who are, and you imagine that you won't be one of them. But Jesus is warning you that you have to be in a state of alertness. You have to have a concern, a readiness for the oncoming danger. Now, some of you might hear all of that, and in your cynicism, you might be saying, well, I mean, how do I know that you're not a false prophet? How do I know that anyone's not a false teacher? How do I know that your way's right and someone else is wrong? I mean, everyone's claiming virtue. Everyone's claiming moral high ground. Everyone claims to be, to be uh, uh, promoters of the truth. I mean, how do I know? How am I supposed to tell the difference? Well, that's Jesus' second point. In verse 16 and 18, it's one thing to realize the danger. Many people never do that. But if you do realize that there's potential danger out there, you need to know how to detect the true from the false. And this is what Jesus gives you in verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. He says it again down in verse 20. You'll recognize them by their fruits. The true nature of these leaders is going to be evident in what Jesus calls their fruit, or we might say in their character and deeds. Fruit is a way of referring to what you might say is the natural byproduct of their life. You remember back in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 8, John the Baptist spoke of the moral quality of someone's life in this way when he says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so there are all kinds of criteria that you might think about using to evaluate teachers in your own mind. So many of them, however, can be feigned and counterfeited and manipulated, but Jesus is saying there's one thing that can't easily or can't easily be counterfeited, which is eventually going to expose every false prophet for who they are, and that is the fruit, the character of their life. John Calvin says, nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. 
And so Jesus explains all of this. Just using common sense and sort of natural illustrations, he says in verse 16, grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? Grapes and figs, of course, were common in Palestine. Everyone would have understood that you don't gather grapes from any old plant that you want. If you want grapes, you have to find a grapevine. If you want figs, you have to find a fig tree. Why? Because one plant doesn't produce the fruit of another species. That's the main point. False teaching doesn't produce righteous character. And Jesus particularly pictures someone trying to harvest grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, another kind of prickly plant. In the Middle East, these these field thistles, as they were known, would have little buds and flowers that were purple in color. And from a distance, you might mistake them as being a hill full of grapevines, but on close examination, you wouldn't mistake them in any way. I'm not a botanist or even a gardener. In fact, most of the time, I can't even tell the difference between plants. But even me, once it bears fruit, I can tell the difference between a pear tree and an apple tree and a peach tree. In other words, when the fruit is born, it becomes obvious what kind of tree it is. You may want to ignore all of this. You may try to ignore the kind of character that your teacher has or ignore the way that he lives his life. You may try to ignore the way he treats his family, ignore the self-centered, self-serving, harsh, unkind, cynical, immoral, impatient character. You can ignore all the thorns and all the thistles, but you'll never find nourishing fruit on that vine. You'll never find the truth from that prophet. This, by the way, is why I'm never a fan of a flat screen preacher or an internet prophet. You don't put your life in the hands of someone that you don't know, someone you just see on a video. I know there's an explosion of what they call multi site churches and video stream preaching, but it fundamentally undermines your ability to watch and observe the fruits of the life of your leaders. You can't really see if their teaching is worked out in their life. You can't see the consistency day in and day out. You interact with them only in those sort of public venues where they have refined their stage presence, where they have sharpened their oratory skill. And you don't really know if you're trying to harvest from a thorn bush or the real thing. And so the point in all this is the way to determine the quality and character of what you're hearing is to look at what it produces in the life of the teacher. A tree is known by its fruit. And so, verse 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. 
nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. This is the law of nature. Now here he's not even talking about the kind of tree. He's not even talking about the species of tree anymore. He's talking about the health of the tree. Rotten trees, decaying trees, diseased trees yield, yield bad fruit. They, they do not produce good fruit. If you have a bad tree, you're going to get bad fruit. If you spend all your time harvesting fruit from diseased trees, you're foolish to think that you're going to get good fruit. I know I've shared this story in the past, but when I was uh, a younger man and didn't really have a way to get good books, I put an ad in the paper one time, poor preacher needs books, can't pay much. And uh, I got a, a, a call from somebody that said, hey, I got a bunch of books. I'd love to sell them to you. And so I was all excited. I hopped in my car one night, drove over to this apartment complex. And this guy just had this just sparse p- apartment and these boxes filled with books. And so I went in and looked at them. There's some, you know, a couple of good things in there, a bunch of stuff that I didn't really care for. But, you know, I made him an offer and we came to a deal. And I just kind of asked him, I was like, well, how, how did you come by all these books? I, I don't understand. And he said, well, I, he said, I'm a, I'm a marriage counselor. And so I, you know, bought these books through the years. I was like, oh, it's a marriage counselor. I mean, why are you, why are you getting through the books, uh, getting rid of these books? He said, well, I just went through a divorce and uh, I'm trying to come up with some extra cash. <laughs> and I thought, I mean, I, mean I, was, I didn't say it, but I was thinking, have you considered a career move? I mean, I wonder sometimes the people who show up to the counseling session, if they even ask, by the way, how's your marriage? By the way, how are you at resolving conflict? You have all these principles and and, and platitudes, but what's your life like? You don't know because you have one hour, maybe every couple of weeks with this person. Jesus says you have to know the quality of their life. You have to see if it's bearing fruit in the way that they live. So when you listen to some teacher, some self-proclaimed prophet, someone sharing with you their brand of spiritual or moral philosophy, how do you discern if what they're telling you is valid? How do you know if what they're giving you is going to really nurture your life? More importantly, how do you know if what they're telling you is going to prepare you for death? How do you know if it's going to ready you for eternity? How do you know it's trustworthy? Whether it's just some piece of moral advice or whether it's metaphysics and the whole view of the universe. Where do you get the kind of alert system to danger? Where do you get the kind of discernment? Where you begin with their character? What's on display? What's the pattern of their speech? What's the pattern of their lifestyle? What kind of motives do they put on display? In their closest relationships, what do you see working out in daily life? And so scripture speaks about this all over the place. It speaks about fruits. 
Not just actions, but attitudes. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, which Paul contrasts with the deeds and the desires of the flesh, which he says are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. All these things, which you could sort of summarize under one broad category as those things which hurt and destroy others. And ultimately destroy your own soul and conscience. And Paul says, these things are evident. It ought to be obvious. It ought to be plain. These are thorns and thistles that are on this bush that you're trying to harvest from. And you haven't taken the time to examine whether the fruit that you're eating even comes from a real tree that could produce it. Most of the time because you're just simply not close enough or you haven't given enough time. You know, fruit, uh, this kind of fruit the kind of fruit that a tree produces isn't always immediate, immediately obvious. It's a reliable test, but it's not necessarily a quick test. It takes time to develop. And the pernicious results of false teaching are not always obvious at first. Sometimes you have to wait a season or two to see what kind of fruit a tree will produce or you have to wait to see if it's going to produce healthy fruit or if it's going to produce decaying and rotten fruit. But sooner or later, it's going to manifest itself. Sooner or later, the sheep's clothing can no longer conceal the real nature. You can feign virtue for a while, but not forever. As Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 when he was tasked with appointing elders, Paul reminds him the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. In other words, there are some sins that are plain and obvious. You'll see the corruption. People haven't even taken the time to try to cover it up. Their flaws of character and life are in parade in front of them. You don't have to do a lot of research. But for other people, particularly those seeking leadership in the church, he says their character and their sins are not always immediately obvious. They're going to appear later. It's going to take time to evaluate and to assess them. And you're going to have to to get close and draw close and watch for a while. But also, he says, the good works of others are conspicuous. Noble deeds of noble people are going to be known by everyone. Not much discussion when you bring up that man or that woman because the people who know him best think of them the highest. But of course, the foolish and the naive, they don't want to wait. 
They are attracted by every fad, by every wind of doctrine. They're drawn along by every gush of boastful pride. They don't even want to bother examining the fruits of the life of their teachers. They're so quickly enamored with the thrill of the new ideas, the freedom of casting off all the old paradigms and the rigid ways of religion. And so the issue really becomes less about the teacher and more about the pupil. The follower, the student, because what they really want is the wide gate. What they're really seeking is the broad way. And they just want someone to lead them there. Which is why Jesus gives his third point in verse 19. Remember the doom of these false prophets. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There is, there is an end. This is going somewhere and it's not good. You may not pay attention to the quality of the fruit now. You might imagine that it's just going to be overlooked, that God himself might ignore it. But the danger is not just in misjudging the tree. It's not just in the jabs and the wounds and the scars that come into your life because of his thorns. It's the final outcome of the trees that is most dangerous. Because the owner of the vineyard is going to bring a day of reckoning. He's going to purge these trees Their days of producing rotten and useless and diseased fruit are going to come to an end. They're going to end in fire, which throughout the Bible is a symbol of God's judgment. John the Baptist mentioned it back in 310. The the, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is chopped down and thrown in the fire. You can't fool yourself forever. You can't ignore the lack of quality in this thorn and thistle forever. You might ignore the diseased fruit now, but you can't ignore it forever because there's going to be a tragic day when the whole house of cards comes crumbling down, the sheep's clothing is stripped away, the arrogant boasting is silence, and the childish rebellion against God and against His truth comes to an end. And it comes to an end in fire. So the warning lights are flashing. The horns are honking. The system is blaring. Danger. Stop. Look at the road in front of you. Think about the fruit. Give it time to manifest and examine it. Recognize that good fruit comes from a good tree, the tree of the gospel, the tree of Christ, and feed your soul on that which really nourishes. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, forgive us where we become lax, no longer caring, about guarding, protecting, or even following the truth. At times we become foolish 
We give up on the task of looking at the fruit of those who are speaking into our life. Lord, we see the danger. It is so evident to us. Your judgment will come. And so I pray that you would fill us not only with caution, but fill us with discernment. Help us to take the time to have the patience, to have the hunger, to find those who will truly minister to us eternal truth. Lord, direct our steps to them. Guard our way and protect us against those who would lead us astray, those wolves in sheep's clothing. Lord, only you are the one who can protect us. We ourselves are too weak and foolish. But Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, you'll do this. And we pray that you'll do it for your honor and namesake in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.